having noted that Moses is dead, the time has come to galvanise God's people for what comes next. Now we as churches in BCC, when I say BCCs, I mean Basingstoke Community Churches. Um, We as BCCs have been through quite a difficult time where one part of our vision, which was the school, came to an end. For some people, that was extremely difficult. For some, it is still painful. Some people are still grieving over it. We've also seen some congregations combined with others, uh, and I was in the room last week where some of those who were most impacted by that have been. The church that world and the church life that they have known in the past, some of them for nearly all their lives, just isn't there anymore for some of them. It's not the way it was. Um, in fact, there are some in this room who are in that situation. Where people knew how we do things around here, they don't know how we do things around here anymore because it's all changed. Um, you know, for some of us this morning, there's a slight discomfort in that we're doing everything rather differently today. It's not quite what it should be. Why isn't the partition open? Um, why are we having coffee before the meeting instead of after it? Why hasn't the preacher turned up? All of that's going on, and for some people that's quite unsettling. Well, if your entire church, we'll be back to normal. Well, I don't know if we're back to normal next week. We'll be back to whatever God has for us next week. But um, for some people that is incredibly unsettling. Some people find themselves in a very different environment now. And for some, that is a grieving process. Now, the worst thing you can say, ask someone who's grieving is whether they've got over it. Have you got over it yet? Isn't it time to move on? Don't ever say that to someone who is grieving, whatever you do. When we are grieving or mourning, we don't get over it. We don't move on. We adjust to life without whatever it was we had before, whether it's a person, a job, a marriage. We adjust to living differently and living without that well-known feature of our lives. And a time comes when, just as Israel's galvanized for what God's doing next, we also need to be ready to embrace what God's calling us to next. For us, for BCCs and for us here in Tadley, the future won't look like the past. Moses is dead. Okay? Good. I, don't, I didn't get our amends for that last week, did I, Margaret? <laughs> Well done, Tadley. (laughs) That doesn't mean that we ditch what is past. We draw on our history to face a future, sorry, our history with God, to face a future in a world that is changing at an incredible rate. First, there's a very clear call to action. God says to Joshua, get ready to cross the river. Get ready. And in each of our churches in BCCs, we have new rivers to cross. Um, It's different for each church. In the church I was speaking in last week, they are integrating the differing cultures of three separate churches and setting the culture for a new, larger church. They're defining their mission and where they work. They're building new relationships within the church and seeking God for a more permanent home. And we do need to be praying for a more permanent home for them because actually, having been there last week, meeting in the Apollo Hotel is not particularly good. So we need to be praying for the hub particularly. 
But we cannot stand on the sidelines here in Tadley and say, we're okay, nothing changes here. Folks, it's going to change here as well. We, have, we, I mean, we had an exciting day yesterday trying to map what does our future look like. And one of the things, you know, recently, God has been doing something here. We've suddenly had a, a lot of very good quality people. To, that's not, not really a reflection on the people who were here before. <laughs> but we've suddenly had a lot of very good quality people turn up um, and we suddenly are having a lot more people here on a Sunday morning. I would never have expected this many people on a snow day, quite frankly. That might be only me of little faith. But um, we, we've got more people turning up. And we are having to adjust the way that we do that. Because whilst I can know the names of 100 people and know more or less what's going in the, on in their lives, I can't know everybody among 200 people. I can't get round everybody on a Sunday morning. And one of our challenges is how do we remain a family but be a growing family without becoming um, a regimented organization? So things are going to have to change around here as well. We have changed quite a bit over the last year. Um, yesterday we were reflecting a bit on the last year. And it's astonishing, actually, how much has changed here in the last year. I've gone completely off my notes. So some getting ready... Sorry? No. <laughs> One of these days I'll stick to them. Actually, someone last week told me off for apologising for going off my notes. So, um, some getting ready has already happened, uh, and there's more to do. The phrase that came out of the review a couple of years ago was galvanising for a decade of growth and impact. Uh, and we, we need to hold that in our minds. But then... God makes Joshua some extraordinary promises in verses 2 through to 5. And we're going to have a look at a few of them. And because it's me, they all begin with the same letter. After a bit of manipulation. So, the first one... Well, there are all three of them there. The first one is possessing. The promise to Joshua is you are going to possess land. A whole load of land. Not just a couple of villages. They're going to take a whole lot of ground. Everywhere they set their foot, from the desert, I can't get my head around this, desert to the Lebanon, sorry, from the desert to the Lebanon, uh, and from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean, I have to do this back to front for it to be right for you. It's, um, they're going to be taking a whole lot of ground. This is actually far more ground than they do end up taking under Joshua. They don't take all that ground under Joshua. And it's one of the things that frustrates me about some of the triumphalist messages you hear on this passage. It's actually not until the days of David that they take all of that land. And they soon start losing it thereafter as well. We can get very disappointed when the whole of what God promises doesn't happen immediately. The second promise that God makes Joshua is a promise of his presence. It's an amazing promise. He says, no, uh, he says, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. God's going to be with Joshua just as he was with Moses. Now we know that Joshua was often in the background when Moses, during Moses' encounters with God at the, at the tent of meeting. And he's promised Joshua that he will have the same experience of God's presence, the same kind of relationship with, with God 
And what was it that distinguished Moses' relationship with God? He spoke with God face to face. Actually, God then goes on to repeat that promise in verse 9. And then the third promise that God makes Joshua in this passage is that, and this one is slightly manipulating the words to begin with P, but is that God's purpose will be irresistible. He makes a huge promise that God's going to do through Joshua, what God's going to do through him will be utterly irresistible. No one, he says, will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. It's a remarkable promise of God backing Joshua up in everything that he does. Now, that doesn't mean it will be easy. You very often hear messages on this passage which say, it's going to be easy. Wherever we put our foot, it's ours. And in my experience, it doesn't usually work out like that. Um, So that doesn't mean it will be easy. It doesn't mean that there won't be problems and difficulties along the way. We encounter obstacles in virtually everything we do in this life. We face setbacks. We have faced setbacks as a church, and we will face setbacks as a church. We have faced setbacks in our own lives, and we will face setbacks in our own lives. But the purpose of God in this world is irresistible. History is moving towards a point when Jesus returns, and the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. That, thank you, Joy, that is where history is heading. That is irresistible. We might lose some battles along the way. In fact, I would almost prophesy that we will. Um, we, we will not win everything we touch. And actually, we need to be quite careful about some of the language that's used in Joshua. For example, somewhere in Joshua, it talks about how they conquered all the land, or, or they killed all the people in particular villages. And when you read on subsequently, it's quite clear they didn't. There's hyperbole being used here, and ancient Near Eastern language being used, and ancient Near Eastern ways of expressing things. So we have to be very careful about the way about trying to read some of that stuff into our experience today. But the purpose of God in this world is irresistible. We can easily forget that the gospel that you and I carry is the power of God for salvation for all people everywhere. I got an amen for that last week. And that the one who's in us is greater than the one who's in the world. We we have allowed ourselves, or we can allow ourselves, to have a mentality that we're going to be tainted. I can remember as a young Christian, don't go dancing. I hate dancing anyway, but don't... (laughs) So that was never a problem to me. Don't go to the cinema. Don't go to pubs. Don't do this. Don't do that. Because you'll be tainted if you do. When Jesus went to the impure, what happened to the impure? And what happened to Jesus? Sorry? He stayed pure. He who's in you and me is greater than he's in the world. Now, that doesn't mean we go around being stupid. But it does mean that we should not be afraid that we will be tainted if we go to messy places. I think I shared last week. Uh, when, I, when I first became a Christian, I had a real thing. My, my mother always... She had a real thing about pubs. We were not allowed to go anywhere near a pub. Um, I never went in a pub until I was about 30, I think. Um, And one day, I'd been praying for a long time for my boss. Uh, Lord, I really want to have an opportunity to tell, I nearly said his name, about you. Um, 
And one day I was out with him. We were visiting. I, I was a. I ran about 15 bakeries at the time, and my boss was coming around some of the bakeries with me. And at lunchtime, he said, "Come on, let's go in this pub." And I thought, <gasps> <laughs> um, and we walked into this pub. And do you know, as we stood at the bar waiting, and in those, this was before the days when it was acceptable to walk into a pub with your boss and order an orange juice. Um, but uh, as we walked in, he said to me, so why are you a Christian? Um, actually, I wasn't tainted by going in there. And in fact, the gospel got out when I walked in that place. We serve a God whose hand is on history and who knows where it is heading. We serve a God who will ultimately triumph. God's purpose is irresistible. It was irresistible for those who would oppose Joshua, and it's irresistible for those who might oppose us. So long as we're walking in what God has called us to, and not just our own good ideas. And we will, we will come up against struggles and battles along the way. So that's verses 2 to 5, three Ps there, possession, presence, and purpose, okay? I'm going to move on to... No, we won't... Sorry, I... I oh, no, we are right. Beg your pardon. Verses 6 onwards, there's a change of gear. And it's three times God says to Joshua... Everyone knows what God says to Joshua. Be... Yeah, be strong and courageous, or strong and very courageous, depending on which pick you pick. And there are several attitudes, I think, in verses 6 to 10 that are worth us noting. And I'm going to focus on just two of them. There are more, but we don't have time for them all. So the first one is faith and trust. They're having to take it on faith that, and, and trust in God's promise that God's giving them the land and that he will enable them to take possession of it. That has to be taken completely on faith because they're stuck one side of a river that they can't cross um, and they are receiving this promise. The whole Canaan project is based entirely on, God, on trusting God's promise for them, first to Moses, then to Joshua. They've been 40 years in the wilderness and some of them must by now be beginning to give up hope of ever living in the land after the diet of manna, the tents, the constant moving on. And we can get like that as well. Um, we can be in a position where we've faced disappointments and tragedies and not seeing everything we've looked to God for over the years. And we've seen some things die. And within our churches, we've seen some things die. Um, and there needs to be an honest appraisal and proper grieving when that happens. I know we were once in a church where the whole church was mobilized to pray for someone who had cancer. Um, and people were prophesying, she will not die, she will live, and all of this, and of course she died. Um, and it was never dealt with. We just moved on. Nobody said, wonder why that was. What went wrong? And it actually damaged our faith as a church because we didn't have an honest appraisal of what happened here. Is God still faithful? 
do we still trust in God? What did we do wrong? What could we have done differently? So there needs to be an honest appraisal and grieving when things didn't work out as we expected. But we serve a God who's faithful to his promises, who is at work in this world, this town, and this church, and who will accomplish his purposes in, for, and through us. One of the wonderful things about God, when I teach history at King's School of Theology, I don't care if they don't remember what the difference between Luther and Calvin was. Really couldn't care less about that. The one thing I really try to make sure that people come away understanding, and one of the things that happens is people will say, well, Luther wasn't such a good guy as you're making out, was he? I don't make out he was a wonderful guy. I think he was a wonderful guy, but he wasn't perfect. I've read Calvin's Institutes last year. There was a lot I don't like about Calvin as well. And people get quite disillusioned that these men and women who transformed Christian history were not perfect. Well, of course they weren't perfect because the lesson we have to learn is that God takes flawed and broken people and uses them to accomplish his purposes in this world. And if people learn that from Christian history, I don't care whether they can remember the difference between Luther and Calvin. Sorry, I went off on one there. <laughs> right. So, but, uh, and it's, it was easier for me to say this somewhere else than it is here. Faith and trust in God's promises. That, that, that is vital here. And one of the things I would exhort, I exhorted another church to do, and I will exhort you to do, because I'm sure Gary would have done it had he been here, is to pray for your leaders. Because actually, the promise to Joshua was be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. If you want your leaders to lead you to a place where we inherit that land, for goodness sake, pray for them. Because that is quite a, an awesome promise. But it's also one where we will very easily go... Um, astray if we're not careful. So do pray for those who lead you because they need to be strong and courageous if they're to lead the church to inherit all that God has promised. Now they also have to give attention to preparing for what comes next. They don't simply respond to God's promise by charging into the land, but they spend three days preparing. When Joshua tells them to get their provisions ready, He's presumably not just referring to food because they're still living on manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner, roast manna, baked manna, boiled manna, <laughs> manna salad, hot manna salad. Um, that's all they're living on. So I don't think he's just referring to food. Um, I think he's referring to more than that as they're still being fed manna. Now, Hebrew word does refer to gathering food for a journey. In the charismatic tradition, you're all getting nervous now, but we're very prone to moving spontaneously and at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, which is one of our strengths, but it's also one of our great weaknesses. We also need at times to focus on making preparations. I don't know, and the text doesn't tell us, but I suspect that for these people it involved a number of things. I think it probably involved making sure that all the men had weapons and that those weapons were in good order and they knew how to use them. 
They probably had practice with wild animals in the wilderness, but they were going to face a far more ferocious enemy now. I always think, I don't know whether it ever occurs to any of you, but as I drive past the Butt Inn, as you know, go through Aldermaston there, and they've put a barrel up outside, which probably has nothing to do with the historical origins of that. The Butts, anybody know what the Butts were? They were the place where the men had to go after church on a Sunday and practice archery. In this country, you used to have to practice, if you were a man, you had to practice archery every Sunday morning. Why? case we got invaded. So it probably included packing their belongings up securely. They, they, they would probably have thought, we're going to be going across that river and everything is going to get wet, because they don't know that the ground's going to dry before them. So they will probably have got all their belongings and wrapped them up very tightly in animal skins so that when they cross the river, it will be kept dry. And because of that, because they can't carry very much stuff that way, what else they would, would they have done? They would have done a lot of decluttering, wouldn't they? They would have followed that silly woman, what's her name, Maria Kondo or something, who says that you shouldn't have more than 30 books. You shouldn't have less than 100 books, is my view. But anyway, <laughs> I said less than, not more than. Um, I've actually got 3,000 on my iPad. Um, we, I've lost my train of thought now. Yeah, it probably, involved, it probably involved an element of dumping things they didn't need anymore because they're going to be moving on. The stuff that served them in the past is not going to serve them well in the future. We need to be people who get ready for what God is calling us to, to do. We need to be getting ready. I can remember years ago in this church, we had a couple who I can remember the husband saying to me once, God's called us to France. We're going to be going to France as a family. And I said to him, so you'll be learning French then? Oh, no. No, won't be doing that. Well, surely if God's called you to France, it would make sense to be learning French. Won't you be more effective if you learn French? No, God's called us to France. We're not going to go and learn the language. They never did go to France. Probably because they failed to make preparation in response to what God had promised them. We need to prepare well for what God is calling us to in the future. That includes things that we regard as spiritual, like prayer, like soaking ourselves in God's word, but also things we regard as less spiritual, but which are just as spiritual as some of these things. Learning the skills that we need. That might be language skills, it might be computer skills. Some of you know, I, I never came across a personal computer until about 1988 when I changed jobs and I went to work in a place where they had PCs. And I can remember thinking to myself, unless I can learn how to use one of these things, I will be an unemployable irrelevance in five or ten years' time. And I stayed behind at work each evening and I worked through every manual that we had for that thing. Actually, I ended up becoming an IT director. Um, had I not prepared, when I saw the world changing in front of me and just thought, well, my company hasn't sent me on a course, I don't see why I should learn it. Um, I'm not holding myself up as a good example here, but we need to prepare. When we see that something is changing, we need to prepare. We spent yesterday as the leaders 
trying to prepare for what lies next for us. We're doing work on how we make disciples in our church. It might involve learning to play a musical instrument. If, you, if God says to you, you are going to be the most incredible worship leader, then for goodness sake, learn to play an instrument. <laughs> and preferably one you can lead worship with. I thought Val's flute playing this morning was beautiful, by the way. Um, it could be any number of other things. The stuff we do in our working lives really matters. The stuff I did in my business life for 40 years equipped me for what I do now. So the stuff we do in the world of business is just as important, or school, or nursing, or healthcare, or whatever it might be, is just as important, if not more so, than what goes on here on a Sunday morning. It can be any number of other things. We need to be people who get ready for what God has for us. They only had three days. I suspect that we have a little longer. But to fail to prepare as they used to say in project management, is to prepare to fail. And then the final thing, I don't think I've got a... Oh, yes. The final thing, and this I think is a particular word for us as BCCs, is do it together, which we see in verses 12 to 15. In verse 12, Joshua specifically speaks to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and Manasseh. Now, these three tribes, why do you speak to these three tribes? Well, these three tribes already had their land on the eastern side of the Jordan. They didn't have to cross the river to possess their land. They're very nicely off, thank you. In fact, we see in Numbers 32 that they've already been busy rebuilding cities, fortifying them, and building pens for their animals. Things are really cool as far as the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the Manassites are concerned. Life is nice. They've got comforts. They've fortified, so they're protected. Everything's great. Joshua is calling them not to be tribal or parochial in their approach, but to support them until all of them have rest. In BCCs, we are dealing with the tension of more togetherness on the one hand and greater autonomy on the other. And that is a tension, not a paradox. Our mandate, like that of the children of Israel, is to support one another until all have rest. I was really exercised last week, actually, at the Apollo, thinking it is not good for this church to be meeting here. Um, sorry, I probably shouldn't say that in public, should I? But that's that was what was going on inside me. We have to do something as the church family to make this right and to make this work. Yes, we each have our own land to press in and possess. And one of the glorious things about the last couple of years is that we have been able to focus on Tadley in a way that we never have been able to before. We don't get called into Basingstoke anymore for stuff. Um, or not for much stuff. Well, you don't, I do. Um, but we, we don't spend much of our time as a church now thinking about Basingstoke, apart from Dina, who's in the food bank and the night shelter and... Um, <laughs> sorting everything, and Val, sorting everything out there. Um, and someone else is in the food at the night shelter. Is it Annette or Neil? Right. Um, so, actually, we are contributing. Sorry? Okay, sorry, there are lots of you. I probably don't know some of the others. But 
which is actually a beautiful illustration of the fact that we are part of a wider family to which we make a contribution and which does contribute to us, uh, except when there's snow. <laughs> so each of us have our own land to possess. And yes, we all have our own priorities under God. And we have greater autonomy as individual congregations than we used to have. But we are also still a family of churches in which we are called and committed to supporting one another. We've actually had more support here over the last couple of years from, from folks from Basingstoke than I think we have over the last 20, probably. Um, there's a great deal of interaction between the core team and the local leadership team. We've had more people in to speak. Um, I think we are probably more tightly integrated now than we ever used to be without having to schlep into Basingstoke once a month for a celebration, which we used to do at one time. We're called to be concerned with the good of the whole, not tribal or parochial. Our togetherness embraces all of that. Now, there are still battles to be fought that we need everyone engaged in. Whether we're Reubenites, Gadites, Manassites, Tadleyites, Hubites, Hopites, or Westites, we do still have battle to do to see all of our churches at rest. What does all being at rest look like? Well, we know the rest of the story of Israel, don't we? It doesn't mean they sat there comfortably and everything was rosy and everybody lived happily ever after. There is, in the Old Testament at least, no fairy tale ending. What does it mean for us? I think it means a number of things as I've reflected and thought about this. It means that each of our churches is established with a strong team of leaders. And we've seen God do great things here in the last year on that front. It means, I think, each of our churches having a base. Whether it owns it or not, I'm not saying we're about to buy a building, okay? Please do not hear that we're about to buy a building, because we're not, unless God really does something. But it means each of our churches having a base, whether it owns it or not, from which it is able to establish a ministry base to the community's that it serves. It means being in a place of relative precarity. I talked. I, I will tell you this story just before I finish. We a year or so ago, I went to a um, um, a convent. Uh, I teach on the King School of Theology spirituality track, um, and we, as part of that, we take the students to a convent, um, which exposes them to very different church culture, and the convent we do too doesn't have rats running around either. Um, in Dowie Abbey yesterday, a rat ran across the church in the middle of prayer just before lunch. So, um, but we had the, the, one of the nuns who runs this, or the nun who runs the convent, the prioress, uh, or the abbess, uh, came and spoke to us. And she talked, she used this word that I'd never ever heard before. And the word was precarity by which it's a fancy word for being precarious. Um, and she talked about how they deliberately live in a place of precarity. They deliberately live in a way that's precarious because that's where they meet God. And I thought that was quite profound. I did feel it was a word particularly for the hub, but I think we have to be prepared to live in a place where things are sometimes precarious where we don't feel in control or in charge. And I say that as someone who really likes to have everything buttoned down. We need to live in a place of precarity. 
So being at rest doesn't mean that everything's fine and we don't have anything to worry about. Israel faced serious challenges and tensions and problems and battles throughout its history. If you read 1 and 2 Kings, it was not, you know, we had a brief period of uh, um, real rest under David. Things probably got very prosperous, but not so good under Solomon, actually, if you read, Solomon, you read two Kings, uh, 1 Kings carefully. Two, 1 Kings carefully. Uh, and then from there on, it just um, it went to hell in a handcart, basically. Um, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until they were overrun by the Assyrians in the north and the Babylonians in the south. So we need to find being in a place of rest while dealing with the challenges of what we walk through. So, we then have a response in verses 16 and 17 where the response of the people to Joshua is, whatever you've commanded us, we'll do. And wherever you send us, we'll go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we'll obey you. Only, of course, they hadn't, had they? Words are cheap, folks. So what we see is there are promises of obedience without obedience. They'd have been better off saying nothing. And it's only a couple of chapters before we see things starting to go wrong with Achan, um, among others. So what are the challenges for us in all this? Well, first of all, I think, hold on. Hold on to God's promises, whether they are prophetic or scriptural. We need to hold on to what God has promised us. We do sometimes need to be prepared to let go of promises that came, I mean, we, one of the things we do sometimes is to go over prophecies that we had years ago as a church. And you look at some of them and you think, that never happened. <laughs> and did it not happen because we didn't respond with faith and prepare and move? Or did it not happen because it hasn't happened yet and we're still waiting for it? And we need to discern that sometimes. But we need to hold on to God's promises. We need to get ready. We need to be people who prepare And we need to understand, both as a church and individuals, where is God calling us to be making preparations? We talked quite a bit yesterday about what changes we need to make for the next phase of our life as a church. Where do we need to be making preparations? So hold on, get ready, and do it together. There needs to be unity of purpose in the church, but in also in this church, and I was hugely impressed yesterday by the unity of purpose among our leaders here. Um, I, I thought that was great. There were no undercurrents or real tensions there at all, and we were able to disagree well when we disagreed. There needs to be unity of purpose in this church, but we are also part of a wider family of churches who continue to stand for one another, to support one another and to fight for one another when we need to. That continues. We are not opting out of that. So hold on, get ready, and do it together, I think are the the messages that come out of this for me, as well as all the Ps that we had earlier. But actually, I'm not 
I mean, I've heard a lot of people preach on Joshua 1. It's one of the favorite preachers if you really want to get people, uh, favorite passages if you really want to get people going. And I must have heard, I've been a Christian now for over 40 years. My heart sinks when I hear someone stand up and say, the Lord says I'm about to do a new thing. Because I think, oh no, not again. <laughs> but actually, the Lord is doing a new thing every morning. His mercies are new every day. He is doing something new every day. I think some of those prophetic words that I've heard over the years about a new thing have just been someone's wishful thinking. I don't really like this. Let's move on. Um, we have someone we know on Facebook who is forever posting, well, they're not at the moment for some reason, but they're forever posting things saying, I sense a realignment today. Plates are being realigned. And you think, well, they realigned in our kitchen every morning. But... Actually, God is doing a new thing every day. God is moving on, and he is calling us to be moving on with him. Um, Whether for us that moving on is a dramatic crossing of a river where everything dries up supernaturally and it's amazing, or whether it's actually that we just keep making progress in what he's called us to and moving forwards, um, we have to be preparing for what we hear God calling us to. Um, So I would urge you, prepare. Um, That involves our devotional lives, it involves our prayer, it involves our Bible reading, it involves our fellowship with one another, it involves a whole load of stuff. But God is calling us, I think, to be preparing for what does come next. Uh, And there is a sense of excitement. We had a couple here a few weeks ago who just said to me, we believe God has said to us that he's doing something here. They come from miles away, um, so we're moving here. Um, so there is a sense, and I think there's a sense among the churches in the town, that something special is happening, uh, and we need to be preparing for that, I believe. So I will, let me pray, and then I'll work out whether we're having coffee again afterwards or not. I don't think we are, are we? Oh, okay, there is coffee afterwards. There are three types of church. There's the type of church that has coffee before the meeting. There's the type of church that has coffee after the meeting. And there are those that have it before and after. Um, And actually, there are probably massive disputes about which sort of church you should be. Um, I don't participate in those disputes. Let's just pray, shall we? Um, And I will close. Father, we do want to thank you for what we see in this passage of your dealings with your people many, many years ago. And Lord, we want to pray that you will be at work in each of us. Will you make us men and women who respond to your calling, who are ready for what you're leading us into, uh, and also who are ready to handle what's happened in the past and what's gone wrong in the past in a way that is healthy and has integrity and doesn't just pretend that nothing's wrong anymore. But will you help us to be people who are able to grieve well, who are able to embrace what you're doing now, and who are able to be galvanized to walk with you in the future? Or will you be at work in each of us? For each of us, that will probably be different. But I want to pray that you'll be at work in each person here. And Lord, I do want to pray for anyone here who is in that process of grief and mourning at the moment. Lord, will you help them to navigate those 
emotions that catch us out at just the wrong moment at times. Will you help them to be able to adjust to life without the person or the job or the relationship or whatever it was that, that has died? Uh, but Lord, will you help us also to be people who are able to embrace your now and your future for us as well? Thank you, Lord. Amen.